morning, everyone. Really, really great to be with you today. Uh, as I've already introduced myself, but my name is Dave. I'm the youth pastor here at City Church. And uh, lovely to be with you, lovely to be back in Inverurie. Uh, today we're continuing our series in Mark the King and his cross. And we're going to be in chapter 9, 42 to 50. So we're jumping back a little bit. I think you were in chapter 12 most recently. But uh, just while you're looking for that, oh, we've got a Bible monitor already, fantastic. Uh, if you need a Bible, if you stick your hand in the air, and that'll be given to you. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love you to take that away. It's a free gift. We'd love you to have. So... We're in chapter 9, 42 to 50 today, uh, and while you're just looking that up, for a bit of background, the point we're looking at, this is just after a point where the Bibles, the Bibles, the disciples, or the Bibles as they're also known, the disciples have been arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They're walking along this road, they're arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus takes them into a house, he takes a child and says, whoever wants to be first needs to be last like this child here. And he's making the point that greatness in the kingdom of God is about being a servant to everyone, about putting others first, honoring the least. And so today we're kind of picking up from that point. We're still sat down in the house with Jesus, and he has more things that he wants to say to the disciples. So we're going to read in a moment. But before we do that, if you're anything like me, you have a bit of a love-hate relationship with technology. In particular, I'm talking about Facebook, WhatsApp, even text messages. Because it's so easy to send something, and then the message just kind of gets lost a little bit in translation. Like, tone does not come across easily when you're just reading something on your phone, does it? And, you know, I've tried to be sarcastic in messages, and that has backfired terribly many, many times. And I was looking online, and I found this text conversation. This is from a while ago when, when we first got text messages. Here we go. This is from a mum speaking to her son, and this is what the mum says. She says, Mike, I've got something to tell you. You'll want to be sitting down. What is it? I'm at the vet. Chester was hit by a car this morning and was killed. Lol. (laughs) Mum, do you know what lol means? Yes, I do. Lots of love. No, Mum, it's laugh out loud. Oh, no, I've just sent that to everyone. Hold on. (laughs) Genuinely... I had a friend who had a very, very similar text conversation with a, with a grandparent like this. What's she like? You see, these words, they can easily be misunderstood given the completely wrong message than was intended. On first reading, that mom comes across as being pretty cruel, doesn't she, in this moment where he's lost his pet and she's like, lol, that's not what's happening. Actually, what she was doing was sending a message of love in that moment. And today, we're going to look at a scripture that if you look at it in isolation, it can seem problematic. It can appear that Jesus, in the words that he's saying, is being cruel or unreasonable. And this scripture can be a little bit of a sticking point for some people. But we're going to look at it it knowing the truth of who Jesus is, and we're going to see that even if it doesn't seem like it at first glance, this is actually a message of love that he is sending us in these words. So we're going to read from chapter 9, 42 to 50. Here we go. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off, stumble, sorry. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth and that we find life in your words, God. And Jesus, we just pray for your wisdom as we look at this passage today. We pray, God, that whatever is on your heart that you want to communicate to us today, God, we would hear that. Lord, that our ears would be open, our hearts would be open to your voice today, God. We want to leave this room changed. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we've already said this scripture that we've looked at is a message of love, even if it doesn't look like it at first glance. You know, the way we read scripture, particularly passages that seem difficult or are hard to understand, is that we read them in the context of the rest of the Bible. We read them knowing God's character, who he is. You know, we know that he is good. We know that he is a God who has chosen us. He's faithful. He's merciful. He's just, gracious. He's our redeemer, our protector, our counselor. You know, he looks after his people. He's holy. He's glorious. Ultimately, he isn't just loving. Without him, there can be no love. God is love. So we want to have that big picture of God in our minds as we look at this scripture today. We want to see who Jesus is in this moment. And we might worry that some of those attributes that I've just listed, you know, are contradicted in the words that we've just read. But guess what? They're not. Because God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so we're going to look today at three ways that Jesus is actually communicating love to us in these words today. The first thing is he's telling us we need to be rescued. It's a big day because one of my top two favorite human beings is in the room right now. And that's my wee boy, Judah, over there. And would you know it, the other person, the other top two is also there, Hazel, my my wonderful, beautiful wife just pandering there to my family. But Judah is seven months old now. Uh, We are loving being parents. Um, It's been really amazing actually seeing the way that he's growing up and he's just learning things day by day and we're doing that thing of like videoing him and sending him little messages when like, oh, look what he did today. You know, maybe he's learned to reach something that he couldn't reach before or, you know, he's said a new sound and he does this thing where when he gets a new sound, he'll just repeat it all day. So it's really great at the start of the day and at the end of the day, you're like, I never want to hear that sound again. But uh, he is learning really, really quickly. And one of the things over the last few weeks he's been trying to master is rolling. And for the longest time, he would roll over, he would just try and push himself like that, and then he would just kind of get stuck like there on his shoulder and he'd just be like hovering, you know, on the side like that. And then he would just slump back down and be like, oh, so close. Until a few weeks ago, everyone, 
he did it. He rolled over. It was a huge moment in our household. There was cheering. There was tears. It was fantastic. Uh, but the, so he can roll over pretty well now. But a few weeks ago, when he just first mastered this, the problem was he would roll over, and then immediately he would fall into his stomach and just get stuck. And then at first it was fine. He would kind of laugh a little bit, but he would get more and more stressed. He would start to cry, and then he would just be sick everywhere. So this was the pattern that he would finally roll over, cry, and then vomit would be everywhere. So it wasn't really an ideal situation. And every time, pretty much, we put him to bed, he would just start going all over the place. And maybe an hour later, we'd hear him kind of crying a little bit. And we'd think, okay, we'll just, we'll just wait and see what happens. Sometimes you need to let them cry just a little. But then the crying would just like go up a pitch like that. You're like, okay, something serious. You go upstairs. You put him one way. He's flipped himself the other way. He's all, all in the corner of the cot. His leg and the other arm are like caught in both sides of the cot. Somehow he's got himself tangled up. And he's just screaming his head off. And his face is bright red. And as soon as you walk in the door, he just looks at you and goes, ah, like that, like this is your fault, what have you done? And he just gets himself in these positions where he needs us to come and untangle him and sort him out. He needs us to come and rescue him. And it's a little bit of a comical image of Judah there, but the the truth is without us being there to help him, he'd be totally stuck. He wouldn't be able to get himself out of that mess. A big part of what Jesus is saying here in these words is that without him, everyone is in a position of danger. We, like Judah, need to be rescued. Jesus goes on to talk about this danger. He talks about this place called hell in in horrible, visceral language. He says things like, where the worm doesn't die, it continually feasts, and the fire never goes out. The word he uses here for hell is Gehenna, Gehenna was a physical place in Jesus' time. It was a small valley in Jerusalem where historically it was a place for child sacrifice, like the worst kind of evil would take place there. And in Jesus' day, it had become a rubbish dump where the, the waste would just be burned. And some of that would be like, you know, it would be kind of like household waste, but then there would be like animal carcasses, unburied bodies of criminals, and these fires that just go on day by day and night, and the stench that would have came from that place would have been unbearable. And so you've got this horrible place, and it's not surprising that Gehenna, for the Jews of that time, becomes another word for hell, because right there you've got this this place that's just absolutely horrendous, this place of torment and rejection and fire and decay. And I know I started by saying this is a message of love, So why is Jesus saying this to the disciples? Jesus is saying this is the danger that everyone faces. This is the destination we need to be rescued from. He isn't being cruel. You know, he isn't saying this with relish, but he's saying it with very, very strong words, isn't he? You know, imagine a child starts playing with a bottle of bleach or puts their hand near an open flame. What's a parent's reaction or or any adult's reaction in that moment? Is it a gentle, oh, don't do that? You know, like, would you do that? No, of course not. You'd be like, no, get away from that. You would use strong words. There would be a a moment of just being like, no, don't stay away from that. That's going to hurt you. It wouldn't be, being quiet or being gentle in that moment wouldn't be showing love to that child. And in the same way, Jesus loves us too much to mince his words here. 
I'm a bit of a, if anyone knows me, I'm a bit of a space cadet sometimes. I'm really awful for just just zoning out um, for long periods of time. Hazel will confirm this. <laughs> but so even, even in conversation sometimes, I'm really bad for it. I'm like, I really, I have to use all my brain power to like kind of stay, stay honed in on the, on the conversation. Sometimes I'll just find my mind slipping and I'll just kind of go elsewhere. I remember when I was 16, I was with my mate Dan. We're walking along the street and we're chatting away and I have this kind of zoning out kind of moment. And he goes to cross the road. He doesn't look where he's going and there's a car coming really quickly towards him and he hasn't seen it. And in that moment, I kind of look at Dan and I look at the car and my brain kind of goes, huh, Dan's, Dan's walked onto the road, but that car's coming really quickly. He's in danger. I should let him know. Dan, I say really quietly, Dan, there's a, like, that, like in that moment, what I should have been was like, Dan, no, what are you doing? Luckily, but you know, no thanks to me, the car saw him and stopped and Dan was totally fine. But in that moment, I should have been like dragging him off the road or like running or waving my hands or something. I was going to went, Dan, like that because I was half asleep. Yeah. You know, there should have been a strong reaction there. And we have this from Jesus, this strong warning in love. You are in danger. You need to be rescued. You need to be saved from this. This doesn't make for comfortable reading, does it? But it's not supposed to. We're meant to have a reaction to Jesus' words here. And we're to allow the reality of them to hit home for us. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to steer us away from hell. And there's different schools of thoughts about the, you know, the specifics of what hell looks like and what it means. And, and rather than get bogged down in that and say, well, it could be this or it could be that and try and nail that down, all we need to look, do is look at how strongly Jesus is trying to speak here. And I think that tells us everything we need to know. Hell, separation from God, is nothing good. This isn't a gentle suggestion from Jesus. It's a forceful warning. And I know for me, I don't want that for myself to end up in that place. I don't want that for anyone I love. I don't want that for the stranger on the street. Jesus lays it out for us that we can enter life, we can enter his kingdom, or not. And I don't want option B. Separation from God is not where we want to end up. And God doesn't want that for anyone either. For God so loved the world that he was willing to pay the highest price. He was willing to give his own son's life for ours so that no one would perish. God doesn't want this for anyone. He wants everyone to have the chance to be rescued. It is uncomfortable reading that we have today. It can make us squirm in our seats a little bit. But we can't let our reaction be to ignore Jesus' words and to bury our heads in the sand. Whoever we are, whether we know Jesus and we love him or whether we don't, these words have implications for us and for those around us. The reality is here and God, through his love, is reaching out to us and saying, let me save you. Let me save your friends All of us have fallen short, but Jesus can rescue us. So that's the first part of this message of love. It's an opportunity to receive that rescue. And the second part 
is that Jesus is telling us we need to be remade. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, there was a 60-year-old doctor called Dr. Let me get this right, Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane in New York. He'd been a surgeon for about 40, 30, 40 years. And his, his particular field, uh, he was an, an, an anesthetist, which is quite hard for me to say. He was an anesthetist. Oh, I shouldn't have tried to do it twice. <laughs> got, got a bit cocky there. I got carried away. He was an, no, oh, why am I doing it a third time? Anesthetics was his, uh, was his field. Uh, and in that time, the only kind of anesthetic uh, that was used was a general one, which essentially means that you're, you're put to sleep. Your whole body is, is completely numb. Um, and that's fine, but that comes with a lot of risks. And um, what would happen is sometimes people would end up being paralyzed or even die because, you know, this wasn't the best technique to use. So Dr. Kane wanted to prove that there was something better, that you could have a local anesthetic, so just a particular part of your body uh, being numbed. Um, and he thought that would be better, but the problem was he needed to find a guinea pig. He needed to find someone who was willing for him to try this out. Now, I don't know if you've ever you know, undergone surgery before. But imagine if you're you're kind of being wheeled in and then everything's ready itself and then Dr. King kind of pops his head up and he's like, there's something I'd quite like to try. You know how how you're expecting to be asleep and you wouldn't be aware? How would you like to be awake for this surgery? You know, and unsurprisingly, he got no takers. No one was interested in taking part in his mad experiment until one day... His prayers were answered, and someone said, yep, I'll help. And so this patient was having their appendix removed. So it was scheduled for surgery. Patient was prepped, rolled into the operating room. Dr. Kane had everything ready. He performed this operation over 4,000 times. He knew what he was doing, but this was a big moment, never been done before. Patient's still awake. And so he makes the first incision. He clamps the blood vessels, locates the appendix, skillfully he removes it as he's done many times before and through it all the patient reported that they experienced minor pain they recuperated quickly much more quickly than they would have done otherwise and they were released from hospital two days later brilliant dr kane has proved his point there's this milestone in medical history this part that a person could be operated on while still awake it was an amazing achievement and the patient really agreed with that as well because the patient was Dr. Kane. The surgeon and the patient were one and the same. Dr. Kane operated on himself. Disgusting. Absolutely (laughs) disgusting. But he did it. We have a call from... What is the link here? We have a call from Jesus in these verses to do the same thing in our own lives. Again, Jesus is using strong words, speaking to the disciples to get a reaction. The image that he portrays of cutting off a hand or a foot or of plucking out an eye is grotesque, right? It's disgusting. But again, this is a warning said in love by Jesus that we need to be refined. We need to undergo spiritual surgery to remove the things in our lives that would keep us in sin or lead us into it. We have a part to play in that process. We need to actively reject some things in order to be living right with God. I think it's really interesting how Jesus talks about sin here because, you know, if I was trying to think of a, a, you know, an example of what sin was like in our our lives, maybe I would think of something like um, you've been caked in mud and it's, it's all over you and Jesus comes and kind of like cleans it away and that's what sin is like. 
And there's, there's truth in that. We, we understand that image. But Jesus doesn't paint sin like that, does he? He says, sin isn't something that covers you. He says, sin is here. Sin is here. In your hand or your eye or your, your foot or wherever. It's not this out there abstract thing that we just need to keep our distance from. We know that sin is more insidious than that, that it makes its way into our heads and our hearts. And our human nature is to gravitate towards it. It's as close to us as our own hand and foot. And obviously, you know, Jesus isn't telling us to cut off body parts. He's not literally saying that because that's not going to solve anything anyway. The problem is in the heart. But what he is saying is that ruthlessness is needed to deal with sin. That we need to be remade. He says we need to get rid of these things to enter life. And I think too often, and I'm totally including myself in this, is that we're too soft on sin. I'll catch myself uh, looking at, at sin in my life, and my reaction to it is, oh, that isn't great. That's really not good. And it's almost like I'm looking at an unfinished piece of DIY or a pile of dirty dishes that I just need to get around to sorting out. Sometimes my reaction to it is like that. But Jesus doesn't allow us that luxury of just gently nudging sin out of our lives. He says, cut it off. Cut off that part. It's like gangrene. If you don't amputate that infected area, what happens? The infection spreads to the rest of our body. And if we're allowing sin in our lives to sit and fester, Jesus is saying it's like poison in our relationship with him. It has to be dealt with quickly and decisively. And I know I'm using some disgusting analogies here, like gangrene and amputation and stomach-churning stuff. But that is the way that God looks at sin. That is how he sees it. Because it is, it's abhorrent to him and it's toxic to us. It needs to be got rid of. Jesus loves us too much to let us, sin, let us sit with sin in our lives. To be caught and trapped in habitual sin. He says, get rid of it. Cut it. Or do everything you can to remove that from yourself. And when we fall, when we sin, I don't believe that Jesus is saying, well, you've messed up and that's it. We know that's not the case because there's grace and there's forgiveness for all of us because we all mess up. Once we've accepted Jesus into our lives, our salvation is secure and that doesn't change when we make a mistake. But he is saying to us, don't stay as you are. Be refined. Be renewed. Be remade. And again, this, this thing of cutting off limbs, I think Jesus is suggesting that this might actually be a painful process. Losing a hand, I imagine, would be painful. You know, these, these things that we're cutting off might feel like they're part of us for some of us. You know, maybe they're elements of our personality or our character. Maybe anger seems to be the only way that we can deal with certain situations. You know, we, we wouldn't know how to deal or cope if we didn't have that there. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe wrong relationships or porn is how we deal with loneliness. And if you remove that, that crutch almost, it's like, well, what do I do now? Or maybe we are Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It. We love to solve problems, other people's problems, which seems like a good thing. But we have a hard time letting God have control, letting Him into the difficult stuff in our lives. 
there can be elements of our characters, the way we act and think, and we just think, that is so ingrained in who I am. If I didn't have that thing, you know, would I still be me if I cut that thing off? I want us to imagine that we've got a shovel. Picture yourself and look, any keen gardeners in the room? No. Well, you'll have to focus really hard then for this illustration. Pretend you love gardening. It's your favorite thing. Um, and you've got a shovel. And you're using this shovel. It's quite an old one. And the problem with this shovel is every time you use it, the handle at the top, you get a blister in the same place in your hand. And it drives you nuts. It's like every time it's like, oh, it's stupid. But you think, right, I'm going to sort this out. But you're thrifty. You don't go and buy a new shovel. You think, that's way too expensive. I can get a little handle for much cheaper. And you go out and you buy like this brilliant handle. It's lovely. It's plush. Probably not plush, is it? If it's, well, it's lovely and soft and it's great. The grip's fantastic. And every time you use it, your hand is fitting perfectly in place and there's no more blisters. Brilliant. Time goes on. You keep using your shovel. But the shovel head, I'm going to say, the metal part, you can tell I don't know much about gardening. That starts to, to bend and warp over time. You think, oh, we need to replace it. But again, you're thrifty. You're not going to give up on your shovel. You're not going to buy a new one. And so you buy a different shovel section and you put that on. And this new section is, is brilliant. It's, it's beautiful. It's smooth, sleek, perfectly aerodynamic. It flies through the air as you use it. And that's really important, I imagine, in digging. It's great. Everything's fantastic. Time goes on. What happens? The pole section. Again, I I clearly didn't research shovel. The shaft. Thank you. Someone's done their shovel research or just knows. (laughs) Lots of experience there. So the the shaft, it starts to crack and you think this isn't great. And so you get a brand new shaft instead and you put it in and this thing is fantastic. It's great. And actually the height of the shovel has changed. It now suits you better. You're left with a brilliant shovel. Fantastic, right? Here's the question. Is this the same shovel? Is it the same after we've made all of these improvements? I'm sure we'd agree it's much better than the old one. It works brilliantly. Is it the same shovel after all the old parts have been thrown away? The answer is no and yes. I think it's the same with Jesus with what he does with us. He's asking us to be ruthless with sin, to cut off parts of us that may feel painful to part with. It may feel like we're losing parts of ourselves. The cost might feel great, but what he is doing in that process is he is making us new. And when we come to know him, you know, in that moment of of salvation, we're made into a new creation. That's what the Bible says. The old is gone and the new has come. And it also says that we go on being transformed by the renewing of our minds to become more like Jesus. Jesus loves us enough to not let us stay the same. He loves us enough to communicate hard truths to us. There's sin in our lives that we need to get rid of. And it's so insidious that at times it might feel like cutting parts off. But he's saying, but it's worth it because I am making you into a new thing. By doing this, you're investing in your relationship with me. Don't settle for the old things. Go for the new. Where is Jesus calling you to make these cuts? What are the areas in your life, in your heart, that you're like, I know I need to get rid of that? I know I need to shed that thing. Where does he want you to be remade?
So Jesus has told us in love that we need to be rescued, that we need to be refined and remade, and lastly, we need to remain. We said right at the beginning that this was a message all about love. Dramatic pause, build up the tension. Um, This is a message of love. And to see it for what it is, we need to understand the full context of of who God is in the Bible. And we also need to have the full context of what is going on. If you remember right at the beginning, we said that Jesus had brought the disciples into a house. And he'd sat on the floor with them sat around him. And as he's saying all of these things to him, he's holding a child in his arms. And the word that's used... To, for, to, that describes how he's holding them seems to suggest that Jesus is holding this child like cradling in one arm, that it's a baby that he's holding. And that's the scene that Jesus has set for this conversation with his followers where he's saying all of this stuff. Um, when I was maybe like four or five years old, I don't know, I used to do this thing where when it was my bedtime, I knew it was my bedtime, but I would just lie on the couch and I would pretend I was asleep. And the reason was twofold. One, very lazy child. Very, very lazy. But two, I knew that if I did that, my dad would then take me up to bed. He would pick me up and carry me. So I would just lie there and he would come and he would try and shake me awake and I would do my best acting, like loll over and just kind of pretend that I was, I was totally crashed out. I don't think he was fooled, but, but he, would, he would take me, he would kind of scoop me up in his arms and he would put me over his shoulder and he would carry me up the stairs to bed. And I'm not sure that there's many times in my life where I felt safer than then with my dad lifting me up and just carrying me upstairs in his arms. Jesus is saying all of this, holding this baby in his arms. And the disciples in that culture wouldn't have thought, oh, a baby, how sweet. They would have thought, a baby, how insignificant. As he's doing that as he's holding this baby, he says, don't cause these little ones to stumble. That's the first thing he says. And you can see the love and the protectiveness that Jesus has in this moment. Jesus' message here isn't angry, but he's saying, don't lead this child into any harm. Don't cause them to stumble. We can see his love and his care and compassion for the most insignificant He's saying all that about this baby, but then he switches it and he says, don't let yourselves stumble. The focus is switched suddenly from talking about this baby in his arms, then talking about the disciples and to us. And it's like, we're that baby in that moment. Don't pull this little one out of my arms, but don't you leave my arms either. I feel like that's what Jesus is trying to say. Don't pull this baby away. Don't you leave this place of safety. Because our correct posture as, as followers of Jesus is to be like that baby, to be open, vulnerable, and completely safe in his arms. Like in John 15, where he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Stay in it. Dwell in that place. The heart of God is that everyone would discover what it means to live from that place of just being in Jesus' arms. It's likely that actually this was Peter's house they were at, and it's probable 
that this was actually Peter's son, some commentators seem to think. And you imagine being that baby and growing up and people telling you, do you know Jesus held you in his arms in this room? Do you know he spoke about how he didn't want anyone else to take you away from him? That he loved you that much? Imagine, imagine that being your story. Imagine growing up and knowing that, that Jesus spoke those words over you, that he actually held you. That is the reality for us. Jesus does that. He holds us. If we let him, if we, if we surrender ourselves to him and we're in that posture, he holds us and he says, I love you. I don't want anyone to take you from this place and I don't want you to wander from it either. This is the place that Jesus is calling us to live from. Part of the whole cutting off the limbs and all that kind of stuff, as we said, it's painful, it's costly, it's something give almost feels like giving up part of ourselves. I think as well it's giving up the things that we lean on, the things that we rely on. And Jesus is saying, don't rely on your own hands. Don't rely on your own feet or eyes. Remain in me. Lean on me. So this is a message of love given by Jesus. Given to us so that we could be rescued, we could be remade, and that we could live our lives remaining in him and in that place. Why don't we stand? I think that probably the right response in this moment is is to give space to to God. To maybe maybe just that thing we've just been talking about about resting in Jesus and just being in His arms. Like we can do that right now. So why don't we just give the Holy Spirit some room to do whatever He wants to do? I'll pray and, and we'll just wait for Him and we'll see. So.